Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys History Podcast, and with me one last time, for now at least, is my friend, Alicia Malone. Hi. Oh, hi, Tom. Yes, I'm Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. And while I'm really going to miss doing this with you each week, Tom, I'm excited to get into this episode, the season finale. And later in the show, we will have not one, not two, but four special guests (laughs) with us. Executive producer Gareth Neem, co-executive producer Sonia Warfield, Costume designer Kasha Velitska Mamone and Mrs. Astor herself, Donna Murphy. Why does that make me nervous? Well, <laughs> this is definitely a very special episode. And in those interviews later, we're going to take a closer look at how a period piece on this scale is produced and discuss the variety of production elements that went into bringing this show to life. So. Let's jump into season one, episode nine, called Let the Tournament Begin, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. Wow, Tom, where do we start? This is an action-packed episode. Yeah, we have a lot to choose from because let's face it, this season, we've been following a big mix of characters and storylines. Mm-hmm. And in this episode, we see several of them evolve or change somehow. Yes, and several storylines are resolved. Others are just starting. So how about we begin with Peggy? Right. We finally have all the pieces to the Peggy story. We thought we did in the last episode when Peggy opened up to Marion about her marriage and her baby, whom she thought had died in childbirth. But in this episode, Peggy's mother, Dorothy, reads a letter sent to her husband, Arthur. It's no address, just a date and a name revealing that Peggy's baby did not die after all. So Peggy's life has just been turned upside down and she goes to her mother for support. He stole my child and all the time he was working and sitting down to dinner with us and living a lie. He wasn't in his right mind. Please don't make excuses for him. I'm not, but I don't know what good can come of this. We we won't find the boy and Arthur won't help us. Us? Have you come over to my side? I've always been on your side. My baby is alive, Mama. My baby is alive and I want him back. Oh, this is an emotional moment. And, you know, it really seems to bring mother and daughter closer together. Yeah, even if Dorothy underscores that she's always been on Peggy's side. Mm. I was struck by how far they've come. Because remember, Mm -hmm. the first time that we see Dorothy and Peggy together in the series, dining in the cafe with Dorothy looking so uncomfortable, she was pleading with Peggy for peace and forgiveness. And she keeps trying to be the peacemaker for so many episodes. But here, it's all changed. This news changes everything. Yeah, Dorothy realizes that she has also been betrayed. Her own husband Mm -hmm. has been lying to her. And the big question is, what's next? Dorothy and Peggy leave Brooklyn for Philadelphia to find her child, but will they find him? Mm -hmm. And will Dorothy and Arthur get a divorce? I'm imagining that wasn't too common back then. No, that strikes me as very unlikely because... In New York State, the only legal grounds for divorce at the time was adultery. And we're not talking about an affair here. Um, But this this certainly does set up Peggy and Dorothy for season two. 
Yeah, sure does. And then there's Mrs. Astor. So Bertha is planning for Gladys's big coming out ball. She desperately wants Mrs. Astor to attend. So she stops by her home to drop off an invitation. Yeah, she's all dressed up in an open carriage with a driver mm-hmm. and a footman in full livery dress. And she's then met by your favorite character, Hefty, <laughs> the Astor's butler. We saw him up at Newport, and here he is again, and he is. Still not thrilled to see Bertha. I love that Hefty because he's never thrilled about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know if he was a real character, a real person? Well, I haven't found any evidence of an actual Mr. Hefty, but there were several butlers who were well-known by members of society. For example, Mamie Fish consulted with her English-born butler, a man named Morton, on all kinds of etiquette issues because he had served with English nobility. He wasn't afraid of correcting guests or even correcting Mamie herself. Well, Mrs. Astor has obviously instructed our Hefty to tell Bertha that she's not at home. Understandably, this infuriates Bertha, so she forbids Carrie from attending the ball or even dancing in the quadrille. Yeah, that was a power play. Yeah, so walk us through why Gladys was disinvited. Well, I think that the official social rule was that you only invited people you knew or special guests, but people who had received or you had received them. And she didn't yet officially know Mrs. Astor. Well, I mean, she tried, but she was denied. Right. And clearly that is the reason that Carrie is disinvited. Hmm. Mrs. Astor has snubbed Bertha. And over the course of the episode, then, Carrie Astor pushes her mother to pay a visit. And finally, Mrs. Astor relents and heads up to 61st Street. By the way, I love the look on Mr. Church's face. He seems almost starstruck when he sees Mrs. Astor. Even Bertha can't quite believe it when he tells her, Mrs. Astor is here in the hall. Bertha quickly positions herself in front of her full-length portrait to receive her, But then their meeting, confrontation, it doesn't exactly go smoothly. No, it does not. Mrs. Astor seems to think that calling on Bertha the day before will be enough to get Carrie reinvited. But again, Bertha sees through this power play. Mrs. Astor has chosen to visit at a time when nobody else would be around. Mm -hmm. And also, Tom, you've been telling me rather excitedly that Bertha's ball (laughs) echoes what happened at a real ball in, was it 1883? Yes, that's right, the next year. It was one of the most famous balls in New York history, Alva Vanderbilt's costume ball of March 26, 1883, which she held at her new mansion, the Petit Chateau, at 665th Avenue at 52nd Street. Shout out to Richard Morris Hunt. (laughs) Who else? There he is again. (laughs) And the ball was held to celebrate the completion of this fabulous over-the-top mansion. New York society was just in a tizzy choosing their costumes and, yes, rehearsing quadrilles. And Even Carrie Astor was hard at work rehearsing her dance, the Star Quadrille. And was she working on it with Alva's daughter? No, that seems unlikely because Consuelo, Alva's daughter, was only six years old at the time. Ah, okay. But still, it it sounds all very similar. (laughs) Yeah, but wait, it gets even better because remember that there was a lot of tension with Alva Vanderbilt trying to make, you know, the Vanderbilts fully accepted by high society. Mm -hmm. They had been snubbed just like the Russells, for being new money. But this new extravagant mansion made a powerful statement, and now this ball. I mean, there were 1,200 invitations that were sent out to seemingly everyone in New York society except for the Astors. Caroline and Carrie had not received invitations because Alva had never been received by or visited Mrs. Astor. She had been snubbed. The drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and did Mrs. Astor end up paying her a visit, you know, like we see in the show? Well, in real life, Mrs. Astor did head up to Alva's with a calling card. I don't think that she actually got out of her carriage, but the, <laughs> the card alone did the trick. And with that, Alva's last two invites headed down Fifth Avenue to the Astor home at 34th Street. And, and yes, Mrs. Astor would attend the ball which the New York Times would cover on its front page the next day. Mm. Um, They wrote in an article that the ball, quote, agitated New York society more than any social event that has occurred here in many years. And really, you know, this party would be seen as a pivotal moment for the Vanderbilt family's acceptance by New York's 
old Knickerbocker society. There's so many parallels going on. And in our story, Mrs. Astor gives in. She agrees to come to the ball with her daughter and also to send letters to her friends. But none too soon, because it's the morning of the ball. I mean, they really cut it close here. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it made me so nervous. (laughs) But we will talk more about Bertha's ball in a moment. But of course, one character who did not receive an invitation was Mrs. Chamberlain. But she does a good deed by helping Marion with her plan to secretly marry Tom Rakes. Clearly, though, she also has her doubts about Tom. She does, yeah. It's like she's happy to help because she feels a real connection with Marion, who, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's actually been kind to her. And yet she's worried. Although, don't you get the sense that she's primarily concerned that Marion might end up being shunned by others? Like, she's also been shunned. Mm. But she is, she's still willing to help out. Yeah, and she's also seen that Tom is a new man about town, which worries her. Meanwhile, even Peggy has been brought into Marion's elopement plans, agreeing to take her bag to Mrs. Chamberlain's, but she gets busted by Aunt Ada. Aunt Ada, who once again proves that she's no fool. She so knows that something is up, and she has a heart-to-heart with Peggy as she's on her way out the front door this time. And Ada also later talks with Marion, whom she feels seems distracted, which is true, actually. I mean, Marion seems a bit stressed, and she, she can't seem to hide it from her aunt. No, and Ada knows exactly what is happening. And I like how she cautions Marion not to rush into mm-hmm. this. You know, she points out that Tom Rakes has not waited to slowly prove himself and that Marion could stay and argue her case with Agnes, which I, I completely agree. I do too, yeah. I, it would have also been very entertaining to watch Marion stand up and fight for her man, but of course <laughs> she doesn't. And instead she's prepared these two letters for them. Uh, for her aunts and, you know, because she's planning to run away. And I just, I don't know, I find it kind of unsatisfying. She's just taken off. I know, but I feel like that Marion knew deep down that Tom might change his mind. So she's just trying to make sure the wedding happens before that moment. Well, fortunately, it's Aurora Fane to the rescue, swooping in to tell Aunt Ada, you know, about the flirty scene that she'd seen at the Academy of Music the night before where Tom and Sissy Bingham were all over each other, which, by the way, was very disrespectful to the soloist. <laughs> and now, now Aurora and Ada then kind of spring into action together, sending Aurora scrambling to Mrs. Chamberlain's to stop the secret wedding. And I was like, quick, Aurora, to the cab. <laughs> to the cab. And this actually brings them full circle, Aurora and Mrs. Chamberlain, because remember... In the very first episode, we saw Aurora warning Marion to steer clear of Mrs. Chamberlain at the charity planning party. And now, here we have Aurora standing there thanking Mrs. Chamberlain. Very true. But, you know, all that rushing is for naught because Tom Rakes fails to show up for his own elopement. And Marion, sure that something terrible must have happened to him, she heads off. She finds him hiding out in his office where he's penning a breakup letter and she is devastated. I assume we're not getting married today? Marion. Just tell me, was it all pretend? Of course not. I love you very much. But as New York smiled on you, you came to see that there were others who could offer you so much more than I could. The truth is... I'll tell you what the truth is. The more you pushed for our elopement, the more you felt your desire for it slipping away. I suppose I thought that if I could only make it happen, then things would come right. But I began to suspect that if we did marry, we would have no armor for the battle that lay ahead. We'd have no money, you mean. We know New York now, you and I. There's a life to be lived here, and a good life. But two penniless strangers from out of town could not have hoped to live it. But Miss Bingham can make sure of that life for you. Well, why not? She won't suit the old crowd, but she'll do well enough with the new, and her fortune is more than ample for both of you. I don't admire myself for it. (sighs) On that note, I'll say goodbye. (sighs) I feel terrible for Marion. She is so sad here. But honestly, Alicia... I think I was happy to see this fall apart. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking. That shot where Marion walks out of the office and crumbles. Oh, mm-hmm. but we knew this was coming. 
And he's so cowardly. I mean, Tom yeah. is just in his office going about his day, trying to get out of it and leaving Marion waiting at Mrs. Chamberlain's. Yeah, no message, nothing. He's mm. he's trying to compose a letter, but come on. I mean, I feel like at the same time, we've been getting prepped for this moment for several episodes. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I haven't really trusted him since we saw him the very first time at the Academy of Music in the Skirmerhorn box. Yeah, you knew that. Totally. I just want to give Marion a hug, but there's no time for that because as she remembers, Larry is going to deliver those letters to her aunts. Oh, I think she even gasps, the letters. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it's another mad dash back up to 61st Street. I love all the mad dashing in this episode and the cab hailing, by the way. Mm. This episode has so many cabs in it. You know, she's taking them back and forth to Mrs. Chamberlain's, down to Tom's office, now with Peggy. Oscar takes one later, and they are all spotless. And was it like, you know, the way we think of cabs these days, that you could just go on the street and and hail one down? Yeah, the the handsome cab company uh, had been around for more than a decade, and their cabs were pulled by one horse uh, with a cab that sat two or three people and a driver sitting up above their backs. And they were small enough to dodge obstacles in the street. And obviously fast enough to get uptown quickly because Marion bursts into the parlor to find Larry Russell seconds away from handing her letters over to her aunts. Like, seriously, microseconds from this handoff. (laughs) It's incredible timing. Mm -hmm. I mean, good old Larry with that beautiful smile of his. I think we have been not so secretly Team Larry for weeks now, Alicia. Exactly, yeah. I mean, she literally has like the nicest, most handsome and eligible wannabe architect living across the street from her. Mm-hmm. And we should note that Larry also gets to deliver one of the most epic lines in this episode when riding in a carriage with his father later. He says, this is a great city in a great country at a great time in our history. I want to be a part of it, father. It's a great line mm. in a great episode. Yeah, it even pleases George, who gives him a little encouraging Tap, tap on his leg. (laughs) And also in this episode, we get a little bit of comic relief in the form of Monsieur Baudin, who reveals himself to be Josh Borden from Kansas. (laughs) He apparently picked up a little French accent while washing dishes in Cannes, and now he's forced to explain the whole charade to his co-workers. If you're not Monsieur Baudin, why are you still talking like him? Because this is who I have been for years, and now it's hard to break the habit. If your name is Josh Borden and you come from Wichita, I think you've got to try. You're right. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Absolutely. (laughs) I can't do it. No, but I love the Australian try and the Kansas accent. I mean, everybody's faces are incredible in this scene. They're they're shocked. They're suddenly embarrassed mm-hmm. by his extremely flat Kansas accent. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's been fired by Bertha because she's worried about the news getting around town. Yeah, I like how she says, when they hear we were taken in, we'd be providing it on a plate. Literally. (laughs) She can still pun, even during a culinary emergency. Yes. Uh, But it is in character that Bertha would be so up in arms here and, you know, demand a real French chef. I spoke about this with Luke Harlan, who's a co-producer on The Gilded Age, who pointed me to a 1903 book called Millionaire Households by Mary Elizabeth Carter. It's a kind of handbook for running mansions. And the creative team used the book for background and for research. And there's a chapter called Monsieur le Chef that explains that the, quote, veritable chef is French and all finesse, unquote. So, yeah, Monsieur Baudin is what Bertha wants people talking about, not Josh Borden from Kansas. The Middle West, I think you mean. So he's replaced by an authentic French chef, but then he drinks until he passes out at the bowl. (laughs) singing something about tortorella, turtle doves. Fortunately, Borden saves the day. 
So let's talk about the ball itself, because as it begins, we see guests arrive at the Russell House and then a group of curious onlookers huddled outside taking a peek. Mm -hmm. Another great parallel to the Vanderbilt ball. All the articles describe how the streets were jam-packed with New Yorkers watching the party get started. And then inside, guests are announced and even Agnes and Ada are there because Mrs. Astor requested their presence. Yeah, they just walk right across 61st Street in their ball gowns, right through the dirt and filth. And Ada is giddy about the whole thing. In fact, when she heard the news earlier, this might have been my favorite exchange in the entire episode. Agnes says, really? You are glad to be ordered to march into hell and dance with the devil? <laughs> to which Ada responds, I wonder sometimes if you don't slightly overstate your arguments. Yes, no one is forcing you to dance. <laughs> I love Ada. She's the best. And Bertha is just happy to see them. But really, she's waiting for the arrival of Mrs. Astor, who finally steps through the door with her daughter and then Ward McAllister, and a hush falls over the room. Mrs. Astor, how good of you to come. How kind you are to receive me, Mrs. Russell. Mr. Ward McAllister. Mrs. Astor, Mrs. Russell. Mr. McAllister. Well, here we are. All of us together. What could be nice? <laughs> it, it is satisfying to see them standing there facing each other, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I look forward to speaking in a moment with Donna Murphy, who plays Mrs. Astor, about this standoff and also mm. about the exchange that happens between them a few moments later in the ballroom. Yes, and then, Tom, we finally get to see the quadrille complete with horse heads. Yeah, I, I love how the season is basically ending with a big dance number. And yes, at Alva's Ball, there were a hundred dancers who performed six different quadrilles, including the hobby horse quadrille, which included prop horses. So we, we see a tribute to that in this episode with, the, with those horse costumes. And was that the same dance that Carrie Astor performed? No, hers was the star quadrille, which Greg King, in his book, A Season of Splendor, explains that the young women, quote, wore gowns of yellow, blue, mauve, and white with tiny electric lights in their hair powered by concealed batteries that twinkled as they danced. Oh, that sounds lovely. <laughs> but meanwhile, Marion is also at the ball, but she sees her former fiancé, Tom Rakes, with Sissy Bingham. I mean, mm. the goal, like, he moves really fast. It's the same day. The yes. same day. Yes. Well, fortunately, Larry Russell dashes in to lift Marion's mood, and they waltz. Everybody waltzes. This is such a beautiful boring dance scene. I love the swishing gowns and the dashing men, the beautiful music, the mm. smiling guests. Oscar is there too, dancing with Gladys, who is now officially out, so she'll have a little bit more power to make her own choices. And all of this really takes us back to the first episode where Bertha attempted to stage a party, but nobody showed up. Mm -hmm. Now her ball was a success, attended by the cream of New York society. Yeah, and even Mrs. Astor seems to concede that. And in real life, after Alva's big ball, the real Mrs. Astor would proclaim, the time has come for the Vanderbilts. And, you know, I think that here she's basically saying the time has come for the Russells. And it was a good time for all. I was reading how these balls would often go all night. And as we see here, Marion doesn't get home until the morning. Yeah, Alva's ball went until six o'clock in the morning. I mean, it reminds me of clubbing in the 90s. <laughs> I can never do that. <laughs> and poor Jack. I mean, he had to wait up for her. And then we have our last little bit of dialogue. Ada says, good night or actually good morning to Marion, mm -hmm. reminding her that she still has most of New York to explore and all the people in the city to choose from. Plenty more fish in that sea. It's a heartwarming finish and a perfect setup for a new season. Mm -hmm. And in that final shot, we end where we began nine episodes earlier with Jack and Bannister on the doorstep, nodding across the street to church, but this time, instead of new furniture going into the Russell's mansion, we see rented chairs for the big ball coming out. 
And I have to say, I love this because it is exactly the same sequence of shots as in mm -hmm. episode one, but now so much has changed for all the characters. You know, like with Church and Bannister, they give that same nod to each other, but after spending nine episodes with them, we can see that it is laced with meaning. I think mm -hmm. Bannister is going to have his revenge, but I'm sure that will all come in season two. And right now, Tom, we need to take a break because when we come back, we'll be speaking with Donna Murphy, who plays Caroline Astor, and Gareth Neem, the executive producer of The Gilded Age. And then don't go anywhere because we'll also finally be talking costumes with costume designer Kasia Velitska-Mamon, as well as co-executive producer Sonia Warfield. We'll be right back. But if I don't maintain standards, what is the point of me? Of course. But what we need to determine now is whether Mrs. Russell will support those standards or undermine them. How can you ask? You know I follow your lead to a slavish degree. But you want to go to the ball. We cannot hope to keep out the new people entirely or they'd form their own society that would exclude us. You know this. Yes. And if it looks as if her children might make decent marriages... They'll make decent I... marriages without our help. They're good-looking and they smell of money. The sweetest scent I know. If I were you, I'd bring him in now and gain the credit. But it's tonight. Send a note to her this minute. And another to Agnes Van Ryan. Oh. Then write to anyone else you can think of. You mean you don't think that I can beat Mrs. Russell at my own game? My dear Mystic Rose. I fear if you try, it might be at the cost of your own dignity. Which translated means you want to go to her ball. <laughs> Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast. And now two very special guests, Donna Murphy, who plays Mrs. Astor, and the executive producer of the Gilded Age, Gareth Neem. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Great to have been listening to you uh, recently yeah. and, and, and to be with you. <laughs> Yes, I've really been enjoying listening myself, and I'm delighted to be here today. Thank you. Thank you to you both. Gareth, let's start with you. You and Julian Fellows are, are longtime collaborators, and you're, you're no stranger to producing period pieces, including, of course, Downton Abbey, uh, the TV series and films, including the upcoming Downton Abbey, A New Era. And the Gilded Age TV series deals with some of the, the themes that we've seen play out on Downton. I'm thinking class, manners, the conflict between old money and new. And yet the Gilded Age is a uniquely American story. I'm curious, what new collaborations did you need to form in order to be able to tell this American story authentically? It's a really interesting question about the origins of the show because, you know, we could see how Downton Abbey was becoming more and more popular in the States. And there's always been a, a sizable Anglophile audience for these, particularly these kind of costume pieces. But of course, Downton Abbey just broke the banks and it was the biggest foreign show ever to come into the States in, size of, in terms of the size of audience and its impact. And we became increasingly interested, of course, the fact that there was a sort of American equivalent. There were, America had its own take on Aristotle. You know, it wasn't like an aristocratic traditional thing based on kind of centuries. It was based on, you know, large numbers of people all coming to the city, you know, over a period of 100 years or so, old money and new money and so on. The point was, we were very interested in the fact that most American people didn't really know that there was this tradition in their own country. It's a European thing. It's a British thing. And we thought, how fantastic if we could make a show for the American audience and say it happened here, too. You have also mm -hmm. the same fascinating tradition. And of course, because of the technical difficulties of executing to recreate that world really could probably only have been done by HBO with that sort of scale of a, of a series. We could introduce a domestic audience to a history they know nothing about and has so rarely been shown on screen before. Yeah, mm -hmm. what kind of technicians did you have to surround yourself with in order to tell this American story very authentically? Well, I suppose the, you know, the biggest question of all was where were we going to make the series and how were we going to make it? Because, again, your very interesting episode when you spoke with Laurie, our location manager, 
there really is very little that remains. And, you know, you can't shut down a block in the Upper East Side and, you know, shut it down for three weeks and have horses and buggies going past. And so that, that's completely impossible. And it was always clear that we would have to recreate an entire block of the Upper East Side and these two mansions. And then we would have to combine with, with a huge construction. Obviously, Donna is very familiar with having worked on it many, many days, which is a, you know, a lot of physical construction, lots of stone and timber up, up to about the first floor level. But then all of the upper parts of the building are, are assisted with CG and the whole street into the background is all CG. And then these two lavish mansions had to be built on sound stages. And then mixed in with that, we are brilliant designer Bob Shaw with Laurie and the directors that have selected these brilliantly well-preserved streets, particularly in Troy, New York, where you, you really do feel when you go around the squares of that really fascinating city that you're in a downtown that no longer exists in New York. You still have all of the cobbled streets and the railings and the old houses that haven't been modernized particularly. And it's this melding together of those real locations and, of course, Newport, Rhode Island and everything that those houses had to offer. That combined with these lavish sets built by this extraordinary genius, Bob Shaw and his team. And, of course, with a great big healthy dollar of visual effect, all of those things coming together, we, we've managed to create this world. It's incredible. Donna, in this episode, in episode nine, we finally see Mrs. Astor and Mrs. Russell in the standoff that we've all been waiting for, right? And at the ball, Mrs. Astor reminds Bertha that, you know, she could have destroyed her. But Bertha is confident that she wouldn't have because they're too similar. How do you think that these two characters are similar? Well, I think that in that moment that it's said, Mrs. Astor is not ready to accept that they have a lot in common. Not in a, in a prescient way. <laughs> um, but yes, they're two very ambitious women. They're coming at it from two completely different backgrounds and kinds of privilege. We're meeting Mrs. Astor and Mrs. Russell at a time when two worlds of the new money and the old money, there's a friction because the new money wants in and the old money wants to protect and defend. And yet Mrs. Astor is no idiot. And she is trying to balance the recognition of how important it is to protect what she really believes are standards and ethics and morals that are valuable. It's not just superficial, although it may appear so, but in reading about her, both what people wrote about her, people who liked her, people who didn't like her. She was a complicated woman and she was a woman of, of depth for all the superficiality. So she wants to protect her place and the society, the culture, and the, as I said, the, the ethics and the morals of society. And yet at the same time, she doesn't want to cut off her nose to spite her face. And I don't mean just her nose and her face, but really societies she recognizes that she's going to have to bend. And we do see in this episode, one of the few people besides family members that she lets down her guard with and says to him, what do I represent? What do I stand for if I make this choice? But there's a personal aspect to it. And that's part of what I loved about the writing for this historical character. And this was historically true too. It was... Mrs. Astor and Alva Vanderbilt, mm -hmm. who the Russells are loosely based on. And so mm -hmm. and in certain situations, specifically this tension between these two families was aggravated personally in the Astor household because Carrie Astor had been preparing a, to dance as part of a quadrille dance at this ball that Alva was throwing. And because I had not paid on her or accepted her visitations, she was not yeah. going to be able to invite her. And that hit hard with Carrie and it hit hard between us. And she had a very lonely life really in her home, in her home life. Her children were everything to her because her husband was not around much, we'll just say. So there was the societal element, but there was a personal element too. 
Yeah, and it's it's so much fun to see you and Carrie Coon together. And Gareth, this has such an amazing cast and incredible production values. As you said, HBO was the place to get to do this kind of series on this grander scale. Uh, so I'm curious to know which aspects of production maybe required the most budget because you have the sets with the back lot, you've got the costumes, the trips to Newport, the glorious food. There's so much going on here. <laughs> well, um, you're probably aware that New York City is not the cheapest place in the world to make a television show. <laughs> um, and but there was this huge ambition that we had and that was totally supported by HBO that this was New York's story. This is the story of New York and the right thing to do, even if a lot of it involves building sets, so you don't quite know where it was filmed. The point is, it's New York's story and it was made in New York. By doing it in a real place, we chose in a very uh, expensive and complicated way to do it. But it just feels to us that the show has a truth and an authenticity about it, both because of the locations and because of the fact it is New York's acting community that is telling the story. Right. And, you know, a big moment of this episode that we were discussing earlier was Mrs. Astor calling on Bertha and how Bertha turned the tables on her a bit, you know, which put Carrie right in the middle of it. Let's take a listen to a bit of their exchange. Won't you consider letting Carrie be included in the fun after all? Would you come with her? It is such a difficult time of year for If me. you wish for me to bring your very charming daughter back into the fold, then you must accompany her. My being here now, is not enough. People know of the snub. So to undo the hurt, you must attend the ball tonight, and you must let people know you will be here. You will need to move quickly. I don't have time to do that. Oh, I think you do. And I have one more request. I want you to ensure that my neighbors, Mrs. Van Ryan and her sister, will attend. Why bother with them? I'm tired of being cut on my own doorstep. Make them come. I don't see how. Then you will have to explain it to Carrie. I like her very much, by the way. I'm sorry she won't be here. Well, at least we know where we stand. When I had that scene with Carrie Coon, afterwards I said to, I spoke with my representatives later and I said, if there's a second season and if I'm asked back, the only thing I want to get on my knees and beg for are more scenes with Carrie Coon. <laughs> is because <laughs> she is... I mean, the cast is just chock full of mm. the best of the best, exactly the kind of actors most actors die to work with. You play your side of the net, you come in loaded for bear, you know, with all your needs and wants and what you're going for and everything you know about your character and the circumstances that preceded it and the society you're living in. And then you just go with the scene and you know that what's going to come over from the other actor is going to be gold. It will be 10 different versions of it with somebody like Carrie. We had Michael Engler, the great Michael Engler, directing that episode. He had us trying things so many different ways. So I was so curious to see the episode, to see what was chosen, because there were many different dynamics and many different approaches to how these two women in this very charged situation dealt with one another. And Carrie, I knew she was wonderful from her, the work I'd experienced as a viewer, but I'd never been in a scene with her. And she just was spectacular. The other technical uh, shout out I think we have to make is for these costumes. You know, Kaja's work, I mean, how lucky we were to meet her. I remember we were in Newport and she took the train up to come and meet all the producers and I don't know that she understood quite what she was taking on because within a few <laughs> months, you know, she had this vast factory with, you look at the show, it's thousands upon thousands of costumes that were created, designed, manufactured within a period of only a very few months. But I, I mean, I, I think it's one of the most impressive contributions to costume work I've ever seen. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. And Julian Fellows and I often joke that no matter what the story is about, who the characters are, how good the actors are, they're, they're they're sure as hell looking at one thing, and that's the costumes. You have to get that right. <laughs> and they're beautiful. She is outstanding, and she's a visionary. In her attention to detail and then her own imagination and how she really gave each character an individual sort of 
well, costume vocabulary, I'll just say. You'd be putting on a hat after your hair was done and Kasha would fa- would need to FaceTime to get the angle of the hat just, just so. And she'd have you turn, you know, she was, she was literally like five places at once, it seemed, and always wanting to get the most beautiful and authentic work out there. And she's another person I am so grateful for. Gareth, I have to say that in my job as a host on Turner Classic Movies, I talk about your grandfather, Ronald Neem, a lot because, you know, he was a director, a producer, a cinematographer, but then your father was also a producer and then your great-grandfather was a photographer and a director, so obviously showbiz runs in your blood. But what did you learn from watching your father and grandfather that perhaps you use when you're producing a show like this? I was very lucky to have this pedigree with my father and grandfather, and it meant like any sort of family business, you know, that's all it is. It's like running the, it's running the shop. It's taking over the shop one day. It's every mealtime you're talking about so-and-so's next film and the actors that they work with and these production problems and you know it's as far back as I can remember and so I think a lot of the challenges I faced in my career I can remember my father and grandfather having the same sort of challenges and what they might have done and I'm extremely proud to be the fourth generation of that film history. Yeah and you bring up also just generations you know it makes me think of how there are also generations of families watching this show, watching The Gilded Age. It's a show that you can watch and talk about with your parents or aunt and uncle. It is a family show. What is it like making a family show today? Because there really aren't that many shows out there like this, right? Well, I I absolutely agree. And this is uh, really the territory that Julian and I have been working in for many years now. It's all about the classic things, you know, it's birth, marriages and death, it's the rites of passage, it's it's will they, won't they, it's about a family. You know, in Downton and indeed in Gilded, there are love affairs, there are love stories, but it's, Fellows writes really about romantic love, it's, there's not a lot of sex going on in these shows. And uh, although that was kind of deeply unfashionable when we started Downton in 2009-10, we found that it's actually very popular right around the world, that the suspense of the will they, won't they is so timeless and very appealing. And you're absolutely right. It has the big advantage that three generations can watch it together, that I think you know it's a, a very accessible way for young people to find out in an era where there's so little interest in what happened in the past and where we all came from. And the fact that we're not a unique generation, that generations before us were had much you know mostly the same sort of concerns that we have i mean i think you know the ladies in the real housewives of new york would fit very well into <laughs> an episode of gilded age you know the, the, the idea don't of let being, that get out there gareth <laughs> you're going to be bombarded in under, in <laughs> that idea of um, a club or society that you want to be into and that mrs astor assisted by McAllister, you know have this kind of high wall around it and you can't come into this club which of course just makes everyone want to come into the club human beings have operated like this you know for millennia it's just wonderful to think in an era now where there's much less live viewing than there used to be and there's much more catch up and all of that that this can appeal to old audiences and young audiences together and it's um as you suggest tom it's sort of viewing we used to do perhaps when we were growing up and it's much less common now but when it works it's still incredibly popular Yeah, it's also wonderful to learn about history while being entertained. And I'm having such a great time learning about this through the show. And, you know, Donna, one thing that I find so interesting about Mrs. Astor is that later in her life, she famously greeted people under the portrait of herself. And of course, in this show, it's a portrait of you. What was the experience like getting (laughs) your own portrait? Well, Production designer, the aforementioned Bob Shaw, uh, extraordinary designer, is an old friend of mine. Um, We worked together many years ago in the theater. And um, once I had been cast at some point, he he sent me a photo. It was a location. And uh, he said, but instead of this portrait, there'll be a big portrait of you hanging up. And I said, what are you talking about? And I hadn't found the part in my research yet or hadn't reached the point where there was the reference to this this infamous painting, which actually didn't happen until 1890, 
And she liked to greet people in front of that portrait. I mean, she would position herself. And I think sometimes the portrait was moved so that if she wanted to sit in a chair or on a dais in her ballroom, the portrait would be moved to be behind her. Um, anyway, in this situation, because that was such a such a juicy and specific detail about her and a choice she made in her lifetime and not that far away from the time we're dealing with, he was decided to have a portrait. They found three paintings. One, I think, was of Mrs. Astor and then two others that were appropriate to that time. And then we basically had me pose. I was just dressed in black, but I was Mrs. Astor from the neck up. And we would position my head in the same position as the women in these portraits to then, you know, have this, <laughs> this <laughs> new portrait created. But it was rather the first day I, I saw it, I was blown away by it. And um, there was recently some little interview that I did. It, it made a reference to me laughing my ass off at the portrait. <laughs> and I was very offended by that because what I laughed my ass off about was that in that episode, that after all the drama and all the introduction of George Russell and what that meant, that she had this morning free and she just glided past that portrait. And mm -hmm. there's no comment on it except here's yeah. this portrait. And here she is gliding past it to have a free morning. That's what I laughed my ass off about. Not the portrait, which I think is gorgeous. <laughs> anyway. You should keep the portrait, put it in your house and greet people underneath it. I know people asked, did they give you the portrait? And this was before <laughs> we had been picked up. And I was like, I don't know what the plans are for the portrait <laughs> right now. I have my hopes and dreams, but I don't want it to be in my house for a long time. Exactly. Many seasons. <laughs> and I also love how in, in today's show in, in episode nine, when you finally do go to the Russell's house, you know, and make your sort of surprise call to Bertha, did you notice that she she panics for a second? Well, what should she do? And she runs to greet you underneath her portrait. Yeah. So <laughs> perfect. And I just love the way that Carrie played that and that the choice was made for her to have her own stunning portrait in a different style, you know, because it was, it was, a, it was more modern, but it's still was something that a grand lady would do. And mm -hmm. I love that that choice was made. It was really interesting and did not go unnoticed by Mrs. Astor as well as the actress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, Gareth, we would be remiss if we didn't ask about the future. We've referenced season two here a number of times. Congratulations on the renewal. Got to ask, how far along are you in the process? Well, we're well underway with the preparations. Um, you know, scripts are furiously being written and rewritten and changed and move around and new locations mm. that come up in the new season are being scouted and all the normal things that we do to put the show together. And it's been a you know, really busy time. We, we start shooting uh, at the beginning of May. It's all hands on deck at the moment. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, we we cannot wait for more. So Donna Murphy and Gareth Neem, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks and congratulations with your show. Oh, thank you. It's been so fun. It's really been a wonderful element of the whole Gilded Age experience. And thanks for having me today. Really enjoyed being here with all of you. And I'll be honest with you, Donna, I can't shake the feeling that I'm talking to Mrs. Astor. <laughs> I mean, it's still kind of freaking me out over here. You're nervous. You're nervous. Are we in? Are we out? <laughs> You're in, baby. You're in my 400. Phew. Okay. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Thank you. See you at the ball. <laughs> We're in, Alicia. We're in. Thank goodness. And I'm glad to be in with Gareth Neem, considering yes. his great Hollywood lineage. Such a treat to talk to both of them. And can you believe they listen to the podcast? No, I love it. I love it. I'm honored. And Tom, that is not it for our special guests in this episode. Oh, no. We have two more special guests coming up. Costume designer Kasia Velisca-Mamone and co-executive producer Sonia Warfield. And you know, all of the episodes have aired, so now nothing is off limits. We can look mm -hmm. back at the entire season and answer those burning questions that we've had. I mean, we have been both waiting for weeks to talk costumes with Kasha. 
Exactly, and Sonia also wrote so many of the series' memorable scenes. So keep listening because the official Gilded Age podcast will be back right after this. We're now joined by costume designer Kasha Velitska-Mamon and co-executive producer Sonia Warfield. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We've been so excited to talk with both of you. And, you know, Sonia, I was reading an article where Julian Fellows spoke about the importance of having you on the writing team, especially given that he's British and this is a very American story. So in what ways did you help to ensure the writing such as the dialogue, was authentic? You know, in terms of societal structures, culturally, things are different in in the UK than they are in America. So mm. I think that informs the characters and the stories and their journeys. In terms of the linguistics mm-hmm. of the dialogue specifically, there were a lot of things that I didn't know, that Julian know, <laughs> knows. So I used the word, I wrote the word strategize, once and Julian said, well, they didn't say that back then. They didn't, they would just say, come up with a strategy. They didn't make those words verbs yet. That's so interesting. And, you know, we spoke with Dr. Erica Dunbar and also Danae Benton in previous episodes who both mentioned you. How did you collaborate with them? Well, the collaboration with Erica was just phenomenal. I felt like I learned history just in working with her. I had not heard of Thomas Fortune before working on this show. I knew about the Black press when I was growing up. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and my parents subscribed to the Black newspaper. And so I understood the importance of the Black press within the community. So when Julian first started talking about Fortune and that Peggy's character was going to be working for him, I said, well, we need to have that character in the show. You know, I want to see that. That's a world that we really haven't seen on screen. It existed. I used to read those newspapers when I was growing up. But Erica really informed all of that and and gave me historical context of Thomas Fortune. And then I got a book on him. So that collaboration has just been fantastic because I, I love history. So for me... To have this world-renowned historian at, at my beck and call, like, that's the best. And Danae is fantastic. You know, conversations with her on the set about her character and her backstory, as well as Louisa, really helped me as a writer write for them. Yeah, and, and Kasha, let's bring you in here. Alicia and I have been absolutely wowed by the costumes. I mean, from the very first episode, they're obviously very essential to the look of the show. Tell us about the team that you worked with to to bring these to life. How many people did it take to costume the show? This operation really demanded participation of the best of the best that we have probably in the country and Europe, of the best of design team, the best of makers to create this enormous show. The script is very clear and very demanding. We created a team of people that helped me visualize this incredible story. Altogether, which created about 5,000 costumes, including extras. Oh my gosh. Very small percentage of those costumes have been rented. Majority of those costumes have been built. We are working with the best of makers in New York City. We're working with the best of makers in Europe. And... We have a team that is an in-house team here in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, So it's the design team. It's our wardrobe supervisor with her team of costumers who are handling the show, fitting the show, who are maintaining the show and running the show during the filming. Those people are just a phenomenal best of the best in the industry. Making 5,000 costumes? Mm. It's incredible. In what kind of a time frame? Did you have like a year to do this? We had probably about eight to nine months in the first period of preparation. We had to have majority of our costumes built at the beginning of the filming. But then we were shut down with COVID, which was a day before our first start date. And In some ways, it helped us with the execution of this project because 
as we were shut down, as we were shutting down, the shipments kept coming in from Europe. Then when we restarted, we had another probably six or seven months. Altogether, probably it was about a year and a half that we had for prep of this project. And in all of this, I must say, because I think because I was surrounded by such exquisite team of makers and design team and supervisors and agers, dyers, tailors, this we actually had a lot of fun making this show. We kept saying, if we don't have fun, this job is not doable. The material was just so fabulous and so potent. And we were continuously learning. We were learning history. We were learning how to make this giant show. We were learning how to communicate in new ways. We were learning how to communicate with each other. And I think it was just like this giant growth for all of us. Yeah, it's such an incredible undertaking. And I love the way the costumes, they're not only beautiful to look at, but they also serve the story. So, Sonia, I'm curious, as a writer, do you get to have any crossover with Kasha or any members of the technical team to talk about character and and what kind of details should be present? Well, I met Kasha when I was in New York and... Uh, we were standing by the monitor together, and I ad- was admiring her amazing work. <laughs> I just think Kasha and her team nailed everything. And what's so funny is that the servants, Julian told me, they used to give the servants the fabrics to the servants as a Christmas present, and then they would make them sew their own servant clothes. Mm. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I am. Can you believe that? No. The characters, I mean, just looking at episode nine, Alicia and I were paying special attention to the costumes and we're noting that it seems like characters have their own palette in some ways, their own color palette, right? Like I saw Ada was often wearing kind of orange and uh, Marion had kind of a light yellow with sort of floral patterns a lot and Agnes was deeper. Did everybody have their own look in certain colors? Absolutely. Like we, I think that the part of the challenge of creating a show like this, it's, it's this giant strategies, this like giant puzzle that is really fun to make, but it's also really challenging to make sure that each character has its own language. Like we spend endless amount of time creating design boards for each of the households, for each of the characters within the households. For example, Marian, she comes from a small town in Pennsylvania she grew up without her mother, so her influences are quite different than the influences that Bertha has or Agnes has. I chose those pale yellows, pale blues with the floral patterns, somewhat symbolic of the place where she comes from. There is also, as she's written on the page, she's quite innocent and she's discovering her journey during the progression of the show and she's learning the city sophistication and city styles by observing both of the households. So each character called for a very different color palette. They were all very much fed by the information that came from the historical research. We are creating very much a story that reflects the stories written on the page versus recreating historical reality. That's where we're creating characters that are created for the storytelling versus trying to recreate historical figures. And that's the magic of cinema. If we are making documentary, we would have a very different approach, but we were not. But it is not a documentary representation of the period. Mm-hmm. This final episode, the finale here, episode nine, Sonia, did you work on that too? Were you around like four you know, the big ballroom scene at the end of the episode. Yes, I worked on writing it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be there because they filmed that in Newport. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there were COVID restrictions about the number of people who could be in those... In the breakers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the mansions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so unfortunately, I I could not be there, but I saw it on screen and it came to life. And as again, as I said, those actors bring it to life in ways that I can't even imagine. That's amazing, though, that they had a restriction on the number of people, and yet they were still able to pull off a scene that looks like they had a completely full ballroom. So they were really counting, like, we can't have our writer here because we need one more person in, in, in camera. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Kasha was talking about bringing the characters, you know, when you put the costumes on those actors and mm-hmm. it brings the characters to life. It's funny because I saw 
Danae and Louisa Mm -hmm. without their costumes on. I had to do a double take because when they put those (laughs) costumes on, they embody Marion and Peggy and they become totally new people. And of course, those corsets make them sit up straight. And so when I saw these two young women just in regular clothes, for a minute, I thought, who are you? Yes, it's it's been that's what's been interesting doing this podcast as well as we get to see them more relaxed. You're like, oh, that's what you look like. Oh, that was a wig. That's so interesting. But Kasha, just thinking about this big ballroom scene, you obviously had to consider so many different characters and also the quadrille, the costumes for that. Where did you begin in creating this scene? The quadrille costumes were made at Eric Winterland Studio. We had this amazing collaboration with Eric because uh, Eric has been creating costumes, making costumes for many years, for about 40 years. We met probably 25 years ago. He's got a phenomenal studio with an amazing team of people. And in this speed of creating this giant process, we do rely on all of our makers to interpret the designs, bringing all of their technical skills and all of their historical experience and all of their making experience. So it's like being part of this giant machine. Every pair of hands that is touching the costumes is contributing to creating this enormous scene. I would say, we keep thinking like how many people actually physically touch the costumes? And it's probably was 600 makers. So simultaneously, there are several teams preparing this enormous scene. There's the makers in New York who are making the principal costumes. There are the makers in Europe who are making the extras costumes. Then those costumes come back to us. And our team of supervisor, led by the wardrobe supervisor, Denise Andres, who creates this giant spider web of fitters, costumers, they start fitting the extras. So they start fitting the dancers, the people who are part of the ball. And then we, the design team, Patrick and Isabel, we are uh, communicating with all of our makers in New York and fitting all the principles. My job is to see every, every piece of costume that goes on the screen. So it's like this giant visual spiderweb of communications that we prepare for it. It's months. It's a very uh, intense making fitting period and then the ball starts (laughs) and we walk into the set we're like oh my god this is (laughs) real and you know it's complicated because like shoes don't fit the shoes don't fit the dancers cannot dance so it's it's that it's that technical it's like being on a big sailboat you know every piece has to work for it to sail over the ocean Mm. and you know, just going to the sort of finale here, the fi- the final scene that we've just watched, uh, the ballroom scene, Bertha's gown for that for that number itself, right? We're we're hearing about it throughout the episode. Oh, the gown, you know, is coming from Paris. Now she's getting fitted, and then the big reveal as she's coming down her staircase, and we see this gorgeous silver leaf print. I think there's some kind of a thing, and white. What went into that this was then designed in New York, I take it? Yes, that was based on a historical gown. Uh, the gown was made by Kathy Marshall at Tricorn. She engineered, you know, the trick was like, how do you physically create this beautiful, looks like effortless leaf pattern on a silk motive? And Kathy figured out how to, how to make it, you know, we had to use very different techniques that the makers at that period were, were using. It was this giant engineering strategy that went into making that gown. But it also had to flow down the stairs. <laughs> Dramatic. Yeah, she just looks so beautiful. And, you know, Sonia, this being the final episode, there's so much that has to happen with the script because you're trying to tie up all of the characters' storylines, but also nod to season two. I don't know if you knew that season two would be definitely happening when you wrote this script, but how do you approach making sure that every character has some kind of resolution, but also keeping the story moving? Well, and part of not resolving everything is leaving the viewers wanting for season two. (laughs) Yeah. So not everything gets resolved. But enough to satisfy us. Yeah. Enough gets resolved. Yes, there. I mean, 
the the nature of this show and a lot of Julian's works are a lot of moving pieces in these characters. But what's so brilliant about what he does is that these characters are so complex and so well-formed. The character knows what they want, what they don't want. And so I I almost feel like the vessel. <laughs> but yeah, but we do close out some stories, promise of other things to come. And no, we wrote it. We didn't know if there would definitely be a season two at that point. But, you, you know, you always kind of write towards hoping that there is something more to come. Well, we certainly can't wait for that more to come. We can't wait for season two. And we want to thank you both so much, Kasha, Velitska, Mamon, and Sonia Warfield. Congratulations on the series. And thank you so much for being part of our show today. Thank you. Gosh, the amount of detail and work that went into those costumes. It's incredible. Yeah, in New York and also in Europe. And the design boards and the color schemes. Mm. Um, I love that the characters all have their own colors, too. I love it. I know. But sadly, Tom, that brings us to the end of our journey. This is the final episode of the official Gilded Age podcast. This has been so much fun. I mean, just a couple of months ago, I knew nothing about Mrs. Astor. Now I'm practically an expert. (laughs) And it's all thanks to you. Thank you for teaching me so much about this time and just being an absolute dream to work with. No, the pleasure has been all mine. Alicia, I'm going to miss uh, spending this time with you, watching the show together. Mm. I'm not going to get weepy now because, you know, I mean, after that Audrey interview, that really did me in. But here, no, I, I'm thinking about the fact that there's so much more left to explore. I mean, after all, the Gilded Age continued for another 20 years, you know, and we're just at the beginning of it here. And like Ada said, we still have most of New York to explore. Yes, and I guess you could say we had a great podcast about a great show (laughs) made by a great team who we need to thank. Yes, this has been the official Gilded Age podcast. Hosted by me, Alicia Malone. And I'm Tom Myers. Our show was produced by Grant Rudder and May Sehai and edited by Trey Booty. A special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Becky Rowe, Kenya Reyes, John Orman, Ashley Morton, Chris Harnick, Dana Froome, and Winnie Parnes, William Schretzman, Doris Liu, Kath Roan, Miro Yoon, and very special thanks to Richard Morris Hunt. Yay! <laughs> one more time. We got him <laughs> in one more time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Yellow. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. <laughs>